This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Considered by many experts to be the greatest mystery in aviation history, the fate of Malaysia Flight 370 still remains unsolved. Through documentaries, press releases, and feature films, millions have tried to stitch together the pieces of this horrific story. If you enjoy these episodes on the disappearance of MH370, check out our Conspiracy Theories podcast. Every Wednesday, we tell the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and possible cover-ups. Follow Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Midnight clouds flash past a dim cockpit. Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah and his co-pilot Fariq Abdul Hamid sat side by side enjoying the view. They had been assigned to the red eye again and were already thousands of feet above the earth cutting through inky darkness. Tonight felt like any other work night. They had a full staff, turbulence was down, and that gentle 35,000-foot hum was already lulling passengers to sleep. 39 minutes into their journey, they prepared to switch over to Vietnamese airspace. This is a routine process that happens on every international flight. The air traffic control of one country hands the plane over to the air traffic control of the other one. Shaw and Hamid received the order to change to Vietnamese airspace. Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9. Good night. Hamid wished them a good night back. Good night, Malaysian 370. But they never switched over to the Vietnamese air traffic control. They never even appeared on Vietnamese radar. They were gone. In less than two minutes, an entire plane vanished into thin air. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. Today, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth meets the podcast where we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You've probably noticed our friend Richard is joining Carter and me for this episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. 
Some of you may know that Richard and I host another podcast, Unexplained Mysteries. Since the story of Malaysia 370 has just as many mysteries as it does conspiracy theories, we decided to cover it together. This episode, part one, is dropping in both the Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories podcast feeds. However, part two will only be streaming on the Unexplained Mysteries podcast feed. You can find Unexplained Mysteries along with all of podcast shows on your favorite podcast directory. And now, let's look at the official story of Malaysia Flight 370. Considered by many experts to be the greatest mystery in aviation history, the fate of MH370 still remains unsolved. Through documentaries, press releases, and feature films, millions have tried to stitch together the pieces of this horrific story. But no one has been able to solve this mystery. Officially, on March 8, 2014, a commercial Boeing 777 was traveling from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia to Beijing Capital International Airport in China. It was scheduled to be a direct flight, lasting 5 hours and 34 minutes. But that's not what happened. Less than one hour into its flight, MH370 disappeared from the skies, taking the lives of 227 passengers and 12 crew members. It's hard to imagine in our age of GPS tracking, satellites, and global connection that a plane could just vanish. But this is what was reported by the Malaysian government in 2014. What followed was the most expensive search operation in airline history. Involving 26 countries and hundreds of ships, the investigation cost the Malaysian government over $155 million. During this episode, all three of us will investigate the minute-by-minute timeline that forms the disappearance of and search for MH370. We will present the official truth as we know it today, highlighting the mysteries and oddities of the situation. Next week... We will challenge that truth, examining the conspiracy theories and mysteries that cloud the details of March 8, 2014. The greatest mystery in aviation history begins with the aircraft itself. Produced by the Boeing Company, MH370 was the 404th Boeing 777 constructed. At 242.4 feet in length and weighing over 770,000 pounds, this plane was massive. In fact, this model is the largest twin-jet plane flying today. Sporting two massive Rolls-Royce Trent 892 engines, each with a force of 415 kilonewtons, Boeing 777s have approximately one-fifth the power of a space shuttle engine. This particular Boeing 777 made its maiden voyage on May 14, 2002, and since that day, it had accumulated 53,471.6 hours of fly time. This translates to roughly 7,526 successful trips around the Malaysian airspace. Over 70 of these trips were to the Beijing International Airport alone. So this aircraft knew the way to China. This may sound like a lot of trips, but this Boeing 777 was nowhere near retirement. Most Boeing 777s fly for 25 years. The plane used for MH370 had only been in the sky for 12. By all accounts, this was a safe aircraft. 
This is very typical of a Boeing 777, considered by experts to be one of the safest airplanes in the sky. Statistically, you are more likely to be struck by lightning than to experience a problem in a Boeing 777. MH370's plane was a model example of this for most of its lifespan. But on August 9, 2012, there was an accident. The Boeing had just landed in Shanghai Pudong International Airport in China. It was taxiing toward the terminals when the passengers felt a sudden jolt and a sickly scraping. It had collided with another plane on the taxiway, that aircraft being China Eastern Airlines A340 plane B6050. No one was injured in the collision, but the right wing tip of the Boeing 777 broke off and was embedded in the left horizontal stabilizer of the Chinese aircraft. Pictures of the crash show a good six feet of wing missing. Although this sounds like a terrible accident, the Boeing company labeled the damage as minor in their service report on September 22, 2012. By October 3rd, two months after the crash, the plane's wing had been repaired and it was sent back to work. Accidents like this are rare for airlines, but all the safety reports that followed this accident show the aircraft in perfect shape. On February 23, 2014, one month before its historic flight, the plane used for MH370 was found to be in compliance with all applicable airworthiness directives. Officially, all damages were repaired. But the aircraft was just one piece of the puzzle. The crew also had a history. As we mentioned in the teaser, the pilot was 56-year-old Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah. He was a Malaysian citizen and had always dreamed of becoming a pilot. He joined Malaysia Airlines in 1981 as a cadet pilot and earned his commercial license in 1983. He saw his fellow employees as family and valued their work both in the skies and on the ground. In 1991, he was promoted to captain, and through his many trips in and around Malaysia, he racked up an impressive 18,365 hours of flying experience. He seemed to love his work, and in an interview, his sister stated, My brother loved life. Shah was known for cooking food for community events in his neighborhood and made sure his wife and children were there when he could not attend. But in the months approaching the flight... Something in Shaw changed. He became cold toward his family and more reclusive. He would spend hours at a time in his homemade flight simulator in his basement, a simulator that was designed to function like the cockpit of a Boeing 777. During this time, Shaw's daughter reported he was, quote, like a different person. We don't know why this sudden shift happened, but we do know the result. The day before MH370 took to the skies, Shaw's wife and three kids moved out of his house. What seemed to be a happy marriage ended in separation. But what's more chilling is the flight simulator. Hours before MH370 took to the sky, some of the flight data was deleted from his simulator. Experts would later report that none of this flight data had malicious intentions, but it raises concerns. The co-pilot, Farik Abdul Hamid, had just as complex a backstory. Although much younger at 27 years old, Hamid shared Shah's passion for flying. He joined Malaysia Airlines in 2007 and worked hard in his position. 
He was promoted to first officer five years later in 2012, and Flight 370 was his final training flight before he would be a captain. Hamid was certainly the more puckish of the two, having snuck a couple of girls into the cockpit on previous flights to show off. But he had straightened out in the last few months and had plans to marry a fellow Malaysia Airlines pilot, Captain Nadira Ramli. Just like Shah, Hamid was kind-hearted and dedicated to his community. He played futsal, a modified form of soccer, with local kids, and even paid for sports shirts so they could form a proper team. Apart from Hamid, the other 227 passengers had their own colorful backstories. Among these victims, 19 of them were distinguished Chinese calligraphers. They were returning from a cultural exhibition in Kuala Lumpur, where their work was displayed. Twenty staff members of the U.S. technology company Freescale Semiconductor were also on board the aircraft. They were returning from a business conference. Two of the passengers were newlyweds on a delayed honeymoon trip. One passenger was a martial arts expert and stunt double. The youngest passenger was a 23-month-old child. The remaining passengers were from 13 different countries, including France, Canada, and the United States. It seems like an innocent group, but it would later be discovered that two passengers lied to get through security. Both of these men were Iranian, using stolen Australian and Italian passports. The true identity of these men would spark a debate around the world and a deep investigation. But regardless of where they came from, all 227 passengers planned on arriving in Beijing. But as our timeline will show, this was not meant to be. We begin at 10 p.m. on March 8, 2014. In Kuala Lumpur International Airport, the passengers and crew of MH370 were working their way through airport security. None of them were flagged. They all passed through with no problems. Even the two men with the stolen passports. They walked to their gate to find an on-time departure listed. They were expected to arrive in Beijing at 6.30 a.m. In the last few minutes before boarding, they charged their phones, took selfies, and sent last text messages to their loved ones. At 11 p.m., Shah, Hamid, and the other 12 crew members boarded the plane and began to prepare the aircraft for takeoff. At this point... There was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. The airplane was fueled and the flight crew prepared the cabin for their passengers. At around 11.40 p.m., the passengers began boarding the airplane zone by zone. They lined up and made idle talk, many of them ready for home, others excited for the possibilities of China. Less than an hour later, at 12.30 a.m., Hamid requested permission to depart from the airstrip. Seconds later... The Malaysian air traffic control granted them permission to leave, and they pulled away from the gangway. They taxied on the airstrip for a few minutes. Then, at 12.40 a.m. on March 8, 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 left an airstrip for the last time. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, let's continue the story. Heading northeast toward Beijing, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 quickly rose to 18,000 feet, communicating with air traffic control the whole way. It's important to note how normal everything seemed at this point. There was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary during this time. Shortly after departure, around 12.50 a.m., MH370 was instructed to make their first handoff. A handoff is a normal procedure for all airplanes. While leaving the airport, the plane relies on the airport's tower. But once it's in the sky, it transfers to a national air traffic control. This air traffic control is in charge of guiding the aircraft throughout the rest of the flight. Like clockwork, at 12.50 a.m., the employees at the Malaysian Tower instructed MH370 to transfer to Lumpur Radar Air Traffic Control on frequency 132.6 megahertz. Within seconds, the transfer was complete and MH370 said hello to their new air traffic control. With new voices in their headphones, Shah was instructed to climb to 35,000 feet, the standard height for commercial airlines around the globe. Once there, Shah leveled out MH370 and prepared for the long road ahead. The next 30 minutes were calm and normal. MH370 was in constant communication with Lumpur Radar Air Traffic Control, and there were no gaps or glitches in their transmissions. It was, after all, a beautiful night to fly. Everything was peaceful, until they arrived at the border of Malaysian and Vietnamese airspace. When a plane approaches the edge of its country's airspace, it has to perform another air traffic control handoff. The air traffic control of one country hands the plane off to the other country. Once again, this is a very common procedure for international flights. MH370 was expected to perform a couple of these transfers that night alone. It's actually a pretty cool handoff. The air traffic control of one country wishes the flight a good night, and the air traffic control of the next country greets them good morning. There is sometimes a couple-minute gap between this audio handoff, but it usually happens in seconds. If there is a gap, the radio silence is called a black spot. This can be a scary moment for young pilots as the plane is essentially flying alone in the sky. But Shah and Hamid were seasoned flyers. They no doubt had experienced dozens of black spots throughout their careers. Tonight shouldn't have been any different. But this wasn't to be a normal black spot. At 1.19 a.m., MH370 was instructed to switch to Vietnamese air traffic control. Hamid agreed to proceed with this order, but it never happened. They remained in a black spot. One minute passed, then two. MH370 never appeared on Vietnamese radar. Vietnamese air traffic control tried to make contact, but MH370 was not on their frequency. It was as if they vanished into thin air. But it gets stranger. Air traffic control is just one of the ways we track airplanes. There are a variety of other processes that help keep our planes safe and on the map. Thanks to a German scientist named Heinrich Hertz, The second best way to track an airplane is through a transponder. 
Not much bigger than a deck of cards, a transponder is a small black box inside every modern aircraft. This device emits a unique frequency that can be tracked by radar. Air traffic control uses transponders to identify planes, pinpoint distances, and even reveal the speed of an incoming aircraft. Because of these benefits, it is mandatory. We mean mandatory for pilots to keep a transponder running at all times. If a pilot considers tampering with a transponder for an emergency situation, they must communicate with air traffic control and ask for permission. At no time should a pilot just flick a transponder off. As MH370 entered its black spot, the transponder was working normally. But it didn't for long. Here's where it gets weird. The moment communication dropped between MH370 and Malaysian air traffic control, the plane began to veer off course by about 30 degrees to the right. This new path took the plane away from Vietnam, away from China, and out into the South China Sea. We know this because Malaysian air traffic control saw this change in direction on their radar screens. This new path existed for two minutes until the transponder suddenly went offline. By 1.21 a.m., both air traffic control and the transponder were disconnected. We can't stress how peculiar this is from an aerobatic perspective. Losing both systems within two minutes is bizarre and very rare. But there is, as it turns out, a third way we track airplanes. This system is called the Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS. Rather than reporting information to air traffic control, this system reports data directly to the airplane's manufacturer, in this case, back to the Boeing company itself. The purpose is a practical one. With this technology, the manufacturer can monitor engine performance, fuel consumption, and make sure their product is performing as it should. Now, this device is located in two places in a Boeing 777. The first ACARS box is located in the cockpit just above the two pilots' heads. The second ACARS box is located in the main cabin area in the middle of the plane. Both of these boxes report different features about the plane. The cockpit ACARS reports speed and fuel consumption, while the cabin ACARS reports the cabin pressure and the functions inside the aircraft. Hence, the two different locations. Right. Now at 1.21 a.m., both boxes reported the plane flying at a normal speed at 35,000 feet with a normal cabin pressure, consuming an average amount of fuel. But at 1.22 a.m., both ACARS boxes went offline. Within five minutes, three forms of communication had gone black. The plane had veered off course, and Shaw and Hamid were flying blind into the night. It sounds like this would be the end of the official story, but it continues. Although not reported until four days after the disappearance, one radar system maintained contact with MH370 after 1.22 a.m. This system was the Malaysian military. Like the ACAR system, they saw the plane veer right into the South China Sea. But then, their radar indicated the plane made an immediate left. But not a slight left. They saw the plane spin almost 180 degrees around to fly back toward Malaysia. Officially, they were able to monitor the plane for eight more minutes until they too lost contact with the plane at 1.30 a.m. According to their last transmission, 
the plane was now flying back over Malaysia and away from both Vietnam and the South China Sea. So the plane faked a right and then went left? It seems so. We don't know the exact motives behind these aerial turns, but those were the physical movements the plane made. It's certainly strange, but still not the end of the story. There is one more way that airplanes can be tracked in the sky, and the results of this device add even more mystery to the flight path. We're referring to satellite communication. Every modern airplane contains a satellite antenna that's able to communicate with the satellites floating around our planet. The only problem is, the details of these satellites are very limited. They're little more than pings, or as airline engineers call them, handshakes. Essentially, a satellite will send out a message looking for a specific frequency. When that satellite finds that frequency, it receives a simple, I'm here, ping from the discovered antenna. Airline officials call this a handshake because the two devices acknowledge each other's existence. It's a bit like two devices saying, hello. This antenna doesn't offer up a location. It just lets the satellite know the antenna is online. But using the time between the handshakes and a little math, airline engineers can calculate how fast the antenna is moving. This is mostly to do with the distance between the antenna and the satellite. If the antenna is further from the satellite, it will take longer for the device to receive the handshake. Although not ideal, it does allow flight engineers to calculate the approximate distance the flight went. Fortunately, this device did not go down. In fact, it was the only tracking device on board MH370 that didn't fail. Using these handshakes, engineers were able to calculate how long the plane stayed online. If an electric fire or system failure caused the plane to crash, the antenna would likely fail in a few minutes. But that's not what happened. The antenna remained online for seven hours after the initial black spot. From 2.25 a.m. to 8.19 a.m., eight handshakes were exchanged between satellites and the airline's antenna. Although the handshakes did not tell engineers exactly how fast the plane was going, they calculated it maintained a normal speed of around 600 miles per hour during those seven hours. At 9.15 a.m., the satellite could no longer connect, so the plane was down. The only way this antenna would continue to communicate was if the plane was flying. So it flew for seven hours after the initial black spot. But we don't know what direction it went, other than away from the satellite. This was devastating news. In seven hours, a Boeing 777 can fly upwards of 4,000 miles. That was roughly the distance to Madagascar or Japan, depending on which direction it flew. Which direction had it flown? Did it change course while flying? And most importantly, why did it keep flying? Meanwhile, the friends and family of the passengers were just waking up to greet their loved ones. They arrived at Beijing Capital International Airport, expecting to welcome their travelers for the 6.30 a.m. arrival. But the plane was delayed. Not unusual, but inconvenient. They parked their cars and waited for the plane to arrive. The passengers waiting to board this plane were also growing irritated. It's rare for a morning flight to be late. Usually red eyes are able to make up lost time from the day before. This is where the miscommunication really started. Rather than coming forward with the truth, 
Beijing Capital International Airport kept delaying the expected arrival time of the plane. We can't blame them. They were confused. The plane never arrived in Vietnamese airspace and never transferred into Chinese airspace either. As the loved ones continued to ask flight staff what was going on, they received the same answer over and over again. It will be here as soon as possible. It wasn't until 8 a.m., one and a half hours after the plane was scheduled to arrive, that the Malaysian government made a statement. They informed the public that communication had been lost with the plane that night. Several hours later, the Malaysian government announced the plane was missing. Here, Malaysian Defense and Transport Minister Hishamuddin Hussein announces to the Malaysian public the horrific disappearance for the first time. MH317 went completely silent whilst over the open ocean. We are in the middle of a multinational search involving many countries and more than 80 ships and aircraft. Less than 24 hours later, on March 9, 2014, a full military operation began. Using satellite imaging, officials discovered oil in the water in the Gulf of Thailand. Confident that this was the site of the crash, they set out to try and save the lives of the survivors. Time was against them. With every passing minute, the search area grew, and the chances of survival dwindled. Dozens of Malaysian ships made their way to the debris, moving as a wave. They arrived and found the oil, but it didn't belong to the plane. It was discovered to be a leak from a passing ship, but the plane had to be in this area. The next morning, on March 10th, the search area was expanded into the South China Sea. Helicopters discovered possible debris near Hong Kong, and the Malaysian government doubled down on the search, sending boats up the South China Sea. They found where debris appeared on the map, but it turned out to be a glitch in the satellite imaging. Another false lead. As these boats continued to scour the surrounding areas, an investigation began on land into the passengers of MH370. Did any of them cause this sudden disappearance? Was this an act of terrorism? On March 10th, two days after the disappearance, the public learned that two fake passports were used to board the aircraft. The Australian and Italian who boarded were actually Iranian. A full-blown investigation began with these two men as the chief suspects. Their social media profiles, job histories, and social lives were analyzed by Malaysian experts. Working through the night, the Malaysian investigators reached a conclusion the next day on March 11th. Both of the men were innocent. They were asylum seekers on their way to Germany and chose Malaysia as their escape route. Here, Malaysian police chief Tan Sri Khalid reports how they made this discovery. Because we, we are in contact with his mother. Okay? His mother is expecting him to arrive in Frankfurt. When he doesn't arrive, he contacted us here. And uh, then, then that's why we knew that uh, he's the one. Officials concluded that two men looking to start a new life in Germany were unlikely to be involved in terrorist activity. Now, over 48 hours since the disappearance, time was running out. The odds of finding surviving passengers was growing slim. No matter how hard they looked, the South China Sea remained a void. But back on land, the investigation was about to take a left turn. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, the story continues. 
Up to this point, investigators believe MH370 had flown out into the South China Sea. But on March 11th, three days after the disappearance, Malaysian officials informed a local newspaper that their military radar saw a different path for the plane. After the transponder went down, the military saw the plane turn 180 degrees to the left and fly back toward Malaysia. This changed the entire operation. The search party was not only looking in the wrong direction, but the wrong sea entirely. And the news had come 72 hours late. To this day, we don't know the official reason for this delay of information. Regardless, the Malaysian government recalculated the flight's path and focused their attention on the Strait of Malacca on March 12th. This is the region of water to the west of Malaysia. It's impossible to imagine the horror these families must have felt during this time. It didn't make any sense. Their loved ones vanished in a plane in the 21st century. Forming protest at the airport, the families demanded the truth and the location of the lost plane. The search around the Strait of Malacca lasted all day, but again revealed nothing. We mentioned miscommunication was an issue for this investigation, and what followed was the worst example. After an entire day of searching in the new location, Malaysian military revealed yet another secret about the plane's path. Publicly, they said they lost contact at 1.30 a.m., but on March 12th, Four days after the disappearance, they informed the public that they had eyes on the plane as late as 3 o'clock in the morning. During this time, the plane pivoted a second time, moving west, away from the Strait of Malacca, and toward the Indian Ocean. It almost goes without saying, but it's strange that the Malaysian military was so late in delivering this information, too. And it's even stranger that they were the only radar system that saw the plane. The Malaysian government did offer an explanation for this hesitation, and it's a heartbreaking one. They were afraid to reveal their level of radar technology to the world. If neighboring countries knew how advanced Malaysia's radar had become, they might not be as friendly. They might even see Malaysia as a threat. It's awful to hear that fear stunted precious hours of the investigation. Whether this is the truth or not, the Malaysian government once again had a new flight path and a new territory to search. This new area was larger than any of the previous territories and impossible to face alone. So on March 12th, Malaysian Defense and Transport Minister Hishamuddin Hussein reached out to the Australian government begging for assistance in their tragedy. Australia immediately agreed to help and the search turned to one of the most hostile bodies of water on our planet, the Indian Ocean. Dawn rose on March 13th, five days after the disappearance. Australian and Malaysian governments were already hard at work. Officials had pieced together a suspected flight path, but the search proved to be much more difficult than initially expected. From the get-go, the weather was against them. Here, Australian Infrastructure and Transport Minister describes the scene. We're talking about searching uh, sections of the ocean which are four to six kilometres deep with canyons and ravines. It is an extremely difficult and complex search. It's tested uh, the limits of uh, human uh, engineering excellence and and technical capacity. Uh, It has been an historic effort. The weather was monstrous. Searchers met strong winds, inhospitable climates, hostile seas, and deep ocean floors. But the worst part was the search area. 
At 118,000 square miles, it was roughly the size of the British Isles. Tony Abbott, the Australian prime minister, was quoted in saying the ocean was as close to nowhere as it's possible to be. Australian Transport Minister Michael McCormick also commented on the vast size of the task at hand. The actual plane uh, is, is, is about 60 metres long. Uh, that's about uh, four times less than the Titanic, which they took uh, more than 70 years to find, and they knew exactly where the coordinates, exactly where it went down. So, you know, th- this, is a, uh, this, this is a very deep ocean. Uh, this is a, a, a large aircraft, admittedly, but not that large that it was obviously easily detectable. The team used satellite imaging to assist in the search. But water is one of the worst surfaces to look at with satellites. Satellite imaging works best in high-contrast environments, places that have clear, defined texture, like land. Water constantly changes, making a search for debris pure agony. It was now March 20th, 12 days after the disappearance. Still, nothing had turned up. Malaysian officials reached out to more countries, asking them to lend their technology and manpower in the search. Hishamuddin Hussein was reported to call this search a concern beyond politics. He asked all countries to put aside their differences and come together to find the plane. If there's any silver lining to this story, this is it. The response that followed Hussein's request was historic. In the next few days, more than 26 countries joined the search, including the United States, China, and India. Ballooning to the world's largest search operation, hundreds of ships, planes, and helicopters circled the Indian Ocean, desperate to find the plane. But March 21st came and went. Then March 22nd. Then March 23rd. Still no plane. On March 28th, 20 days after the disappearance, Malaysian officials returned to the radar calculations. They readjusted their search area and proposed a second area roughly 680 miles above their previous one. Why these calculations needed adjustments was never reported to the public. Regardless, the boats were sent out again. Hussein described this operation as a logistical nightmare. Maintaining and translating information between 26 countries was exhausting, but still they worked. March 29th came and then passed. It was looking bleak. But on March 30th, something was spotted. An Australian search plane saw four floating orange objects measuring more than six feet in the water. Were they lifeboats? Survivors? It was a breath of hope. Boats reached the objects on March 31st to find they were anonymous debris and had no connection with the flight. I can't imagine the agony this must have caused the families. New debris would be found. They would raise their hopes, but every search remained a failure. Here, Sarah Bajak, the partner of one of the missing passengers, expresses her discomfort with the search's progress. We want them to know that we are not going to go away. And until they agree to pursue this more independently in a way that we can feel confident in, we're going to get noisier and noisier. Fueled by their sorrow, on April 4th, another search team was sent out, but this one was different than the rest. The Malaysian government targeted the aircraft's black boxes. These are audio recording devices in cockpits that automatically record conversation. But these black boxes also emit a short-range ping after they have submerged underwater. This was a turning point in the investigation. 
If the Malaysian government believed the black box was underwater, the odds of finding survivors was zero. If the strongest theory was that pieces of the plane were underwater almost a month after the crash, the passengers were dead. Between April 4th and April 8th, now 26 days and counting after the disappearance, several sounds were detected, but none of them were found to be the missing MH370. On May 2nd, 55 days after the disappearance, the Malaysian government announced the next phase, the deep sea investigation. They deployed a Bluefin 21 submersible to cover 3 million square miles of underwater area, roughly the size of the United States. Like many of the searches, this one lasted for months and cost the Malaysian government a fortune. The most significant moment of this search came in October 2014, when they deployed the Autonomous Underwater Vehicle, or AUV. This is a sophisticated robot that is shaped like a torpedo and combs the ocean floor with high-tech sensors. For over a year, this investigation was underway. Malaysian military gathered thousands and thousands of images, but the plane was lost. In May 2015, the expense of this operation had grown too heavy to maintain. The AUV was stopped, and the search for MH370 was over. Here, Hishamuddin Hussein expresses his defeat at the year-long search. Let me assure you that MH370 will not be forgotten, that the work thus far will not have been in vain, and we, by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, will one day get to the bottom of this tragedy. Later that month, the Malaysian prime minister also commented on the tragedy. There comes a time when we have to stop it because we have, uh, did, we have done a very big uh, research program all over the world. And we have not found any evidence yet. So we have to come to us a stage where we cannot keep on searching for something that we really cannot find. That May was a dark month for both the families and officials behind the search for MH370. The plane had been missing for over a year. For the next two months, all hope seemed to be lost. Prayer groups were formed, counseling services were provided to the victims' families, and the world moved past this mystery. This might have been the end of MH370 if it weren't for a group of French beach cleaners on a small tropical island. At 20 square miles, the French commune of St. André Réunion is little more than a dot in the Indian Ocean. It's a pinprick on the map, a few hundred miles out to sea from Madagascar. On July 29, 2015, something appeared on its beach. It looked like a large sheet of white metal. At over seven feet long, it wasn't an ordinary find. The team of beach cleaners quickly alerted authorities, and the French government was contacted. Investigators were flown into the small island as the world held its breath. Upon examination, the sheet of metal contained a serial number, 28420. It could have been a random list of numbers. But it wasn't. 28420 was the serial number for MH370's Boeing 777. It was a missing piece of the plane. Upon further examination, the piece was found to be the right flapper on, a part of the wing that assists in momentum control. 
the French government immediately ordered a search around the waters of Réunion. That week, a second discovery was made. A damaged suitcase. Next, a Chinese water bottle. Then, an Indonesian cleaning product. The world couldn't believe it. These pieces of MH370 were across the entire Indian Ocean, over 4,000 miles from where the plane first disappeared. Since this initial discovery, two other pieces of the MH370 have been confirmed. A wing flap was discovered on Pemba Island in June 2016, an island halfway up Africa. And a wing fragment was discovered in Mauritius, another small French territory in the Indian Ocean in May 2016. Measuring the distance between these islands, the debris radius is over 1,200 miles. Although all three of these pieces are officially confirmed, they suggest the pieces traveled the entire Indian Ocean in a year and a half, a distance almost the size of Russia, only to appear on one of the smallest beaches in the world. If that sounds like a tall order, you're not alone. Many theorists have their own thoughts on the final resting place of MH370. Because this episode is a unique hybrid of our two favorite shows, we've decided to treat next week's episode a little differently. Instead of presenting just conspiracy theories or unexplained mysteries, we have decided to present both. Next week, we'll explore one conspiracy theory and two major mysteries to further understand this tragedy. Starting with our conspiracy theory, we will analyze the debris found in Africa and where more creative minds place the real location of MH370. From there, we'll look at our first mystery. 227 passengers were reported to get on the plane, but 228 people went missing. A mystery passenger was recorded to be on board. But who were they, and why were they on the plane? Finally, we'll take a second look at those ten mystery minutes above the South China Sea as we find the most plausible solution to aviation's greatest mystery. Was this the greatest cyber hijacking of all time? Or something darker? If you want to hear about the mysteries and conspiracy theories surrounding Malaysia Flight 370, Part 2 is available exclusively on the Unexplained Mysteries feed right now, and it's ad-free. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to check it out now. You can find previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode of Unexplained Mysteries comes out every Thursday. And a new episode of Conspiracy Theories comes out every Wednesday. In the meantime, the truth isn't always the best story. The official story isn't always the truth. And never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the Parcast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Michael Herman and stars Molly Brandenburg, Richard Rossner, and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.